climate change is happening. It's everywhere I look. What policies are needed? It is about understanding our landscapes, the migration corridors needed for animal species, how those are changing at a time of climate change. We've got to understand our habitat on a landscape scale. And that means across borders, you know, boundaries, land ownership, progress moves at the speed of trust. We have to get people together to understand what's going on, to trust each other, and to find those intersections of interest. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Sally Jewell. Sally served as the U.S. Secretary of Interior from 2013 to 2017. During her tenure, she was recognized for using a science-based, landscape-level collaborative approach to natural resource management and for strengthening relationships with tribal governments across the country. She was previously president and CEO of REI, a $2.6 billion retailer dedicated to facilitating outdoor adventures. Earlier in her career, she served for 19 years in commercial banking across a wide range of industries and began her career as an engineer in the energy sector. She has been active in governance and board leadership for corporations and nonprofit organizations, including serving as a regent of the University of Washington, where she is currently the Fritzky Chair in Leadership at the Foster School of Business. Sally, welcome to the podcast. Your career has been marked by an impressive record of success in multiple industries in the private sector and in government and philanthropy always with an emphasis on sustainability and social impact. Let's start with your background. You were born in London and raised in Washington State. Talk about your upbringing there, and have you always been attracted to the outdoors? Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Hank. Thanks for doing these podcasts and helping share the benefit of the private and the public sector and uh, your commitment to our environment uh, with your listeners. So it's a privilege to be with you. Thanks. I immigrated here in 1959 as a three-year-old. And my dad came about six months before the family. We came from England. So, you know, culturally not that different. And he was a doctor and uh, working at the University of Washington on a fellowship in anesthesia. And I remember from my earliest days, my dad asking the colleagues that he had at the University of Washington, well, what do people do here? And what he was told was they camp and they hike. And he said, well, I've never done that before. How do I do that? And they said, well, you go to this little cooperative called REI, and it's sitting above the Green Apple Pie Market on Pike Street, and you join And then you can get good equipment and information about how to do that. So that was 1959. He was member number 17,249. Co-op was founded in 1938. It was kind of funny that I ended up working there. But he was a sailor uh, in England. And and so we sailed through my childhood and in just little boats. I raced the little eight-foot El Toro, something I could carry on my shoulders uh, myself at age 12. But most importantly, I think that my parents really believed in, you know, an experiential education. And I'd say between the ability as so many of our generation had to play outside because there were open spaces around and that's what kids did, you know, they played outside until the dinner bell rang or whatever. And sort of formal education with these two week trips starting at about age nine, uh, where I was immersed in nature uh, for two weeks at a time 
and the organizer of these trips, fabulous woman still alive and taking kids out in her 90s, got grad students to come and teach us what they knew about science. So I had a deep connection to nature. It's where I like to play. It's where I was happiest. And some of that certainly was nurtured by my parents figuring out what do people do around here? So landed in the Northwest and that's what people do around here. And we are blessed to have a lot of the natural world close by. Yeah, I was also blessed with, with, with similar experiences and it makes a big difference. Now you graduated from the University of Washington with a degree in mechanical engineering. So talk about why engineering and why did you later make the transition from uh, the energy sector to banking? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a bit more of an interesting story than just engineering. As a child, I loved science and probably like you, pretty inspired by watching Jacques Cousteau and Absolutely. learning about oceanography and kind of wanting to be a scientist in nature, maybe an oceanographer, maybe a physicist. And then I got to middle school and high school. And as so often happens, you begin to grow up, you get influenced by the people around you. If you go to my high school annual, and I was a leader in my high school, you'll see that my career aspirations said I wanted to be a dental hygienist. So what happened? And I just want to just mention this briefly, because what happened is all kinds of signals from outside sources saying this is what girls do. And interestingly, I took the Washington pre-college test equivalent to the SAT. And my friend, Kathy, and I compared notes as one does in high school. And Kathy's really strong in her verbal and reading comprehension and some of those things which were not my strong suit. I was strongest in mechanical reasoning and spatial ability. So very different from Kathy's. The professions they recommended for us were identical. Nursing, teaching, and Russian studies because it was the Cold War. And it wasn't until I got to the University of Washington and I started dating a guy in the dorm who's now my husband of almost 44 years, Warren. He was studying mechanical engineering and we do our homework together. And I thought his homework's a lot more fun than mine. At that point, I was going to be a dentist, not a dental hygienist. But anyway, kind of the natural world, the propensity for, for science and nature combined with the kind of mechanical reasoning, spatial ability, how my brain works was a great fit and started working in a manufacturing plant for the Alaska pipeline. And that's part of what connected me to oil and gas. So that's I, I went to work for mobile oil. Warren and I were newly married, kids really, but you know, got married rather than splitting up and uh, launched our careers together. And honestly, the reason I was working for Mobile Oil, we were in Southern Oklahoma in the oil patch. I wanted to work on offshore structures, still that little bit of Jacques Cousteau, right? I wanted to work on marine corrosion and there wasn't a single structure anywhere in the United States. And there was only one in the world that would allow a woman. So it was a different time, right? It's a, you know, late 70s, early 80s. And we thought, you know what, instead of working for the same company, let's allow our careers to develop in a place where we want to live, where if we have a family, we can raise it close to family. So we moved back to Seattle and I took the first job I could get, which was to be an energy expert during the run-up of the oil and gas industry in that very difficult time that you and I and very few others seem to remember, which was prime rate of interest at 20%. And the bank that hired me said, we want to do this oil and gas thing because it's working, but we don't know what we're doing. Will you come and help guide us through by bringing your knowledge of energy? So that was the transition to banking back in 1981. So you're in the banking sector. And so now you, you come full circle because you go back to REI. 
you didn't just work there, you you became the CEO there. And any of us that like to camp, we all know that. So I bought my camping gear from REI. But you're known, Sally, for building a unique culture, one that emphasized civic engagement and volunteer work in parks and other outdoor spaces. So I'd like to hear about this. I'd like to hear about, first of all, how you got at REI, how you became the CEO, and then the volunteer uh, culture there, why it was important to you, how did the employees respond? Because, you know, volunteerism has been something I know that's very important to you. It's, it's something that's, that I see as being very powerful also. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a multifaceted question, Hank. So l- let me start by saying that the one, one of the great things about banking and this was banking even before they were allowed to bank across state lines. And by the way, we turned down all those loans that Continental Illinois made. And that's one of the reasons I did well in banking was because I, I brought knowledge, but the bank people that I worked for listened to a 25-year-old woman and did not make a lot of the loans that I said, I don't think that there's sufficient collateral here. I think there's too many, I think their assumptions are overly optimistic. So that's that's another part of the story. But Banks understood that volunteering and making your community better made your bank stronger. And so one of the amazing opportunities I got was when the president of the bank that I worked for turned down an opportunity to go on a new board that was called the Mountains to Sound Greenway Trust. And he said, as did others to the, I I call him a civic god, a man named Jim Ellis, who in this community after World War II, which he served in, which he lost his brother in, organized an effort to clean up Lake Washington. So he was already 68. I was in my early 30s, and I got to join that board as it was forming. And REI was a supporter. So one of the things that I found with volunteering that I share with students today and anybody else that will listen is giving back to your community, you always get more than you give. And what I got actually, besides incredible knowledge that helped me later in my career when I went into government, was a connection to REI. And REI asked me to join its board of directors. I joined the REI board in 1996. uh, And I turned them down actually to begin with because I was just too busy raising kids and with my career and everything. So REI's history was one of of giving back. And it's organized as a member-owned cooperative, and it still is. It's got over 20 million members now. And like you and me, you know, you join once in your life and, you know, they they share your their uh, dividend with you depending on what you purchase. But they were concentrating at that point in the late 90s on what they call Great Places Grants. So, you know, people kind of taken for granted that the outdoors and where they recreated and climbed mountains or hiked or camped was always going to be there. And they started realizing that, hey, access is, goes across a private piece of property. And maybe that somebody doesn't want to let somebody cross their property to go do some climbing. Or maybe climbing is incompatible with uh, in the environment, you know, migrating birds or, or nesting birds or whatever. And so they had worked on that to begin with. But as I got there, we realized that as more organizations like the Nature Conservancy or the Trust for Public Land or local land trusts and so on were working on land protection, what was missing was stewardship of public lands. And so I went from the board of REI to being chief operating officer in 2000. I was promoted to CEO in 2005. And we had developed in the early 2000s a core purpose, which was we inspire, educate, and outfit for a lifetime of outdoor adventure. I added two words as CEO with the support of my team, most of my team, (laughs) and those were and stewardship. We inspire, educate, and outfit for a lifetime of outdoor adventure and stewardship. 
we launched an effort to say, you know, we need to engage our members in understanding the value of these places and their role in their protection. So we supported stores uh, putting together service projects. We created this promoting environmentalist awareness in kids, promoting environmental awareness in kids backpack full of curriculum we developed with Leave No Trace. And it gave our employees an opportunity to connect with their community as well as to connect with the outdoors and live that stewardship ethic of the core purpose. And I think one of the things that we saw was increased employee engagement, satisfaction, loyalty, um, and you know, seeing how giving back in nature and the outdoors connects people to place in a way that can in many ways be life-changing. So, you know, it's a kind of a real life example of how volunteerism helps support civil society, but how it also is good for business. Amen to that. And the thing I will add that I've seen with my wife, Wendy's work in the Cook County uh, Forest Reserves around Prairie restoration, that the stewardship volunteers are amazingly effective at really stewardship. And so it's a very cost-effective way of getting things done. Makes a lot of sense. Now, you became the U.S. Secretary of the Interior in 2013. I found that the U.S. Department of Interior is not well understood among the general public. So before we talk about how you got there and why public service, explain the Interior Department and its important role to our listeners. Well, thanks for recognizing that, Hank. It is a complex department, and part of it is because it's just the 10 bureaus that make it up and the other parts of the portfolio that aren't within the 10 bureaus oftentimes have organizing statutes and missions that are in conflict with one another. So, you know, broadly speaking, Interior is responsible for upholding the federal government's trust and treaty obligations to our nation's first people, American Indians, Alaska Natives, and Native Hawaiians. It's also charged with overseeing the public U.S. uh, government federal lands and waters in conjunction with the Forest Service that, that is part of agriculture. So for Interior, that's over a half a billion acres of land and 1.7 billion acres of the Outer Continental Shelf and the development, uh, responsible development of that. And it is about conservation, as you think with the National Park Service, but also development and mining and renewable energy and agriculture and grazing and science in the public interest. So 10 bureaus, Fish and Wildlife Service, National Park Service, Bureau of Indian Affairs, Bureau of Indian Education, Bureau of Land Management, Office of Surface Mining Reclamation and Enforcement, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement, U.S. Geological Survey, and the Bureau of Reclamation. So there you go, that's 10. And then add to that responsibility for the insular areas of the Pacific and the Caribbean. So U.S. Virgin Islands, but uh, Guam, Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, American Samoa, and then upholding treaties uh, to places in the Pacific that we bombed in uh, World War II or that supported the Allied war effort. So it's big and uh, and inherently full of conflict. Yeah, so we'll talk about that in a minute, but let's get to how you got there. So how did you get to the Interior Department and how did the lessons you learned in the private sector apply to your work in the Obama administration? And I really want to spend time on that because as you've just laid out, this is a big management job. And I think one of the wonderful things about the United States is it is possible for people to come, people like yourself, to move from the private sector 
to government, bring your experience there and, and, and then leave and do something else. But how did you get there? Is this something you'd always wanted to do? Well, no, it's not something I'd always wanted to do. I didn't even know there was a Secretary of the Interior. Uh, and the first Treasury Secretary I ever made meant was you. It was really during my time at REI as a business person when I recognized the importance of business engagement with government. And that, you know, phrase that I think is so telling that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. The interesting connection I'll, I'll mention briefly is volunteer service is why I was called by President Obama. It wasn't because I called on Dirk Kempthorne. It wasn't because I had done some uh, subsequent work on providing all REI employees with health care, no matter how many hours they worked, which got on the administration's radar. It was because two people that had supported him and are half a generation older than me, Bill Ruckelshaus, who you will know, uh, first ever head of the EPA in the Nixon administration, and then again in the Reagan administration, had volunteered with me on something called the Initiative for Global Development, which was business leaders coming together after 9-11 to use our soft power to help build economic opportunity in parts of the world that you know, really lacked that. I never would have been on the radar if it wasn't for mentors who I had met through the work that we collectively did as volunteers, not as paid professionals. So it is way easier to run a business. And yet, you know, the accolades you get for being CEO of a business are more than, you know, what you get as being secretary of the treasurer or secretary of the interior. I couldn't agree with you anymore. I mean, it is so true. But I would get back and people would say to me, Hank and CEOs would say, we can't believe all those stupid people in Washington. It must have been frustrating for you. <laughs> and I would take a look and say, there is no low-hanging fruit in Washington. Everything is politically complex or analytically complex, and these jobs are very difficult. I had a scorecard at REI. Every day I would know, if we took an action yesterday, what was the reaction today? And I knew how things were measured for retail, for business. You know, there's a clear scorecard. Another thing I knew was I could take risks and I would be, I would either succeed or fail. But if I failed and REI did fail, you know, we went into Japan, we had to close it down. We lost a lot of money, but we learned from that failure and nobody took us out because of that failure, right? So risk is generally rewarded and businesses are all about placing risk when the odds are in your favor and working to understand the odds. So another factor is budget. Most businesses, five-year strategic plan, maybe longer. First year of that becomes the budget. Every year, they pretty much adjust their budget. They know what it's going to be. It's annual. It's on time. It's approved by the board of directors. And maybe the board is, you know, eight people or maybe it's 16 people, but it's relatively small. And the impact, financially rewarding, but far lower than the impact you can have in the public service. To me, risk is like one of the biggest differences between the private sector and the public sector. People say, why can't government operate like a business? Well, it's not designed to. It's designed to take input from a lot of different places. It's designed to listen and be collaborative. And yet you'd think that when people say, why can't you operate like a business? Okay, well, let's upgrade our computer system. Oops, you know, that didn't work. We buried $100 million. Businesses, as you and I know, do that all the time. But in government, it's like you've wasted the taxpayer money. I want someone's head on a platter. You know, how could you possibly do this? It becomes a political football. And so it tells employees, especially civil servants, don't take a risk. 
No one will have your back. You might get thrown under the bus. So that was that was very frustrating. And I think my predecessor, Ken Salazar, really dealt with that with that Deepwater Horizon blowout in the Gulf of Mexico and the blame game that took place to the federal government. And, you know, the introspection on what could we have done differently, not just what could BP or Transocean or the other players involved have done differently. And of course, the budget, there was only one year out of the four I served in government where we had what's called regular regular order on the budget, where I actually had a budget before the fiscal year began. And that's only because the prior year, so the end of 2013, beginning of 14, there was a government shutdown. Not only did we have no budget, we had no ability to serve the public for three weeks because Congress shut the government down. And so I think it was Patty Murray and Lamar Alexander Patty is my home state of Washington, a Democrat. Lamar Alexander, a senior senator, former senior senator from the state of Tennessee, worked together and said, let's do a two-year budget deal. So it was the second year of that two-year budget deal. It's the only time I had regular order. Otherwise, continuing resolutions that fund projects you're, you're finished with and don't fund projects everybody wants you to do. It's just like, keep doing what you're doing. Otherwise, we shut the government down because we can't agree. Oh my God, so frustrating. Can I end with one more thing, Hank? And that is impact. This is the positive. There is nothing I've ever done or probably will ever do in my life that had the kind of impact that I could have as a public servant. And that's why people sign up to do this day in and day out is because of impact and impacting the lives in a positive way, we hope, if we do our jobs well, for generations to come. So. So let me just add something. First of all, impact is huge. And I couldn't agree with you more on that. The other thing, though, I would say is, and which you didn't really emphasize, is that the problems you have in government, just like they are in business, they're more complicated, but they're people issues, right? They're listening, they're finding middle ground, they're people issues. And so I find it very interesting that the skill set you used at REI and in banking and REI, when you talked about what you're doing and your volunteer programs and your culture building, those skills that it took to, to put those programs together and what it said about you is what let you be successful as you know, Secretary of the Interior. And I would find that people that would come down running big companies that command and control sorts of situations weren't successful because they hadn't developed the kinds of skills it took to be successful in government. So again, and I'm sure you would agree with me that all the lessons you learned in terms of working with people came in, were very useful when you were in government. No question. And and a lot of times the best uh, training I had in those kinds of skills was learning to lead through influence and not power. And that was more done in the volunteer sector than it was in business. Because on a board or as a volunteer, you have influence more than power. And that collaborative listening, respecting different points of view, finding the common ground, that is what really worked in government. And frankly, it worked in business, but there are other things that would work. Well, I've got to tell you, that's the only thing that works in in government, because you've got the authority that the president gives you. And then when you look at all the individual bureaus and looking at Congress, on the one hand, you've got all this responsibility. On the other hand, you have to convince people to get important things done. That's a huge difference. This next question brings you back to where we began, which is back to your childhood. 
during your tenure, you were very committed to connecting people to nature, particularly young people. You did a lot to encourage young people to play, learn, serve, and work on public lands. So why is this so important? I think it's incredibly important because we are part of nature as human beings. We are not above nature. We are a fundamental part of it. And I think as you and I both have experienced, it feeds our soul. I think many, many people have found this during the pandemic. People that became maybe more disconnected with nature. Maybe they were working from home and not commuting so much and going out for a nature walk. I think it became deeper. But, you know, for a long time, we as a society, in fact, for generations, we have been restricting and scheduling our children to be closer and closer to home. Uh, Richard Louvre, author of Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder, uh, published his book in the early 2000s. It's actually a book that I gave to Secretary Kempthorne when I first met him when he was Secretary of the Interior. And to his credit, he read it, which is hard to do when people are giving you books every day, just about, as you know. But I saw him give a speech and he quoted from the beginning of that book, which said, it was quoting, uh, I think, a fourth grade boy who said, I like to play indoors better because that's where all the electrical outlets are. So what Rich chronicled in that book was a number of cascading things that sort of conspire to keep our kids indoors or more disconnected from nature and or in organized youth sports, parents fearing for stranger danger, society moving to where if parents let their kids play in the park without, without being supervised, that they can be turned into the authorities as bad parents or as neglectful. So I understood this from my time at REI. We did research on, you know, how are people recreating? What is the future of outdoor recreation? And just about everything, hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, skiing, it was in decline. And we recognized we needed to do something about that. But we also did some things like peak pack, promoting environmental awareness in kids, this curriculum developed, leave no trace. And we realized it was just like planting a seed, but if you don't water that seed, it doesn't grow. And so with that knowledge, and recognizing sort of the societal trends having impact through, you know, as a land management agency, it's how can we think about what it would take for someone to develop a lifelong connection with nature? And we, it begins with play. So in that vein, with the thanks of American Express Foundation, we supported an initiative around 50 cities to work with the YMCA and local youth serving organizations and public lands at every level from, from city to state to federal government to create opportunities for young kids to play. On Learn, it's like the best classroom is the one with no walls and the best teacher is mother nature. So how do we facilitate that? For the Park Service and the Fish and Wildlife Service and BLM and other agencies, we created the Every Kid in a Park Pass which has now been renamed and codified in Congress because the subsequent administration tried to kill it, called Every Child Outdoors, I think. And it provides a free pass for every fourth grader, which is a great age, to be able to take their families out of all public lands for free. It's a little bit like some ski areas will give, you know, fifth graders a, a free season pass, but then they become lifelong skiers. But it, it helped our, our agency's focus curriculum largely on, on that age group so instead of being kind of scattershot, it brought things into focus and a very, very, you know, low cost to the taxpayer, if any. I mean, if, if anything, it's a positive. So that was sort of step two, learn. Serve was what we've talked about. It's about the importance of giving back. And I have been on so many service projects with young people. And I will tell you when they work on a trail or they work on habitat, they, they hear the birds 
And I saw an owl in the tree, by the way, as I was walking uh, my dog a couple days ago with my uh, seven-year-old grandson in my neighborhood. When you have those service experiences on public lands, you build a connection to that place that never leaves you. If you pulled that root or that rock out of that trail so somebody didn't trip, you will never walk by that trail again without saying, I took that rock out. I made this trail better. And that, of course, leads to getting a whole career trajectory on your radar you weren't aware of, which is the work component. And during the four years we were there, we put 100,000 young people to work on public land. So it's that continuum that I think is really important. And it's government can have a much bigger impact than I think trying to do it by yourself in the private sector without a whole effort together. Now let's talk about climate change. As Interior Secretary, you had to deal with the effects of climate change in a very tangible way, managing wildfires, droughts, floods, and invasive species. Talk about how you assess the climate challenge, what policies are needed to avoid the worst effects of climate change. This is a huge one. And you know what, even in the five and a half years since I left government, it has become so much of a bigger issue, greater awareness, and something that the young people I work with are panicked about, and I think with good reason. And fortunately, I think our debate is moving from, is it real, to what on earth do we do about it? And it's about darn time, because we're running out of time. I'm going to give you an example, and this is another wake-up call to being in the public sector versus private sector. In my About six weeks into the job, and I'd already made quite a bit of, done quite a bit of travel around the country to kind of meet people and meet the different agencies and get to know them in their space. I said to the assembled team, including like in a video broadcast around Interior, and there's 70,000 employees in Interior. I know they didn't all tune in, but a fair number of them did. I said, I can't go out on the landscapes overseen by the Department of Interior and deny that climate change is happening. It's everywhere I look. What policies are needed? It is about understanding our landscapes, the migration corridors needed for animal species how those are changing at a time of climate change. We've got to understand our habitat on a landscape scale. And that means across borders, you know, boundaries, land ownership, and you know, how things are changing, not just how they are today. You know, the USGS created these climate science centers around the country. And actually, during the time I was in government, we added an indigenous component to bring those thousands of years of observation, sometimes called traditional ecological knowledge, to bear. Fish and Wildlife Service had landscape conservation cooperatives looking at a landscape scale. And the best example I can give you of kind of looking at, you know, biodiversity and, and addressing a complex issue is something we worked on when the Endangered Species Act was triggered on protection of a species called the greater sage-grouse, which ranges across like 11 Western states and, and two Canadian provinces. The Fish and Wildlife Service said, this is too big. We're not going to bring all the parties together. And I said, you know, that's not good enough. Let's try and bring the parties together, working to not label the species as endangered because people did come together. We got states and oil companies and cattlemen and the Audubon Society and other environmental NGOs and tribes working together on, on what are the areas that are critical to protect for the sage grouse. I had the big announcement with the Fish and Wildlife Service that the species would not be listed because of the collaborative efforts of all these groups coming together. We need, we need policy help. We need scientific help. We need you know, all hands on deck to address this. You need to get people together, right, to listen to each other, to respect each other, and to find that common ground. Progress moves at the speed of trust. If we're going to make progress on things like biodiversity, 
We have to get people together to understand what's going on, to trust each other, and to find those intersections of interest. I appreciate uh, this administration and so many volunteer groups that have been working on it for years, the concept of 30 by 30, protecting the best 30% of our world's habitat on land and in sea by the year 2030. And that's a good start. The Nature Conservancy, on uh, whose board I sit, talks about protect the best and improve the rest. But it's not just for today, right? It's how is it going to evolve? And I think one of the most important things we need to do is understand that you know, as species like Joshua tree are moving upslope and others as animals like the pika are already upslope and where do they go as things warm in the alpine environment. So it's understanding our habitat and our migration corridors and where they are going. It is then I think most importantly, and this may be where our business backgrounds help, it's how do you align economic interests with environmental interests as opposed to having them at odds with each other? So some examples of that, maybe an easy example for everybody to get their head around would be EPA and mileage standards in cars, right? If you improve the mileage standards in cars and you own a car, you're actually costing you less money to operate that because the government's put in place a standard given companies who are at the table a reasonable amount of time to to reach those. Maybe a little more uh, complex, but similar during my years in government, we worked on saying, all right, well, public lands have been used for extractive industries. How do we use them for renewable energy? There were zero projects for renewable energy permitted on public lands when President Obama took office. And this is something Ken Salazar, my predecessor, really put a major emphasis on and made a lot of progress on. But a lot of the stuff I picked up and carried across the finish line because it takes time, right? The Desert Renewable Energy Conservation Plan in the Mojave Desert in California said, where are the endangered species? How do we avoid them? Where are the tribal interests in the sacred sites? What are the community interests in terms of the visual landscape and what they might be looking at? Where are the disturbed areas that make sense to develop? Where are the transmission lines that would reduce the price to a merchant power generator for moving that power? And how do we drive development to those areas that are most disturbed, that are most conducive to transmission, that aren't in critical habitat and aren't going to bother people, and let's drive development there. And that's the Desert Renewable Energy Conservation Plan. And what that does for business is we said, if you go to these areas, we've done the EIS, the Environmental Impact Statement, we've pre-cleared it for renewable energy, you're close to power, and so we will have your permit within a much more expedited period of time, like 90 days. I mean, that's sort of unheard of, but it's because you do all the clearing of the conflict in advance. And we did the same thing with offshore wind in the Atlantic. So the first lease sale generated maybe a million and a half dollars because the infrastructure wasn't in place. The most recent one, which was just like in this February, generated over $500 million for renewable energy for the US Treasury. So that's standing up a whole industry by aligning the interests of the environment with the interests of economics and moving forward a whole industry that really wasn't even on the radar in any material way, certainly involving public lands, just going back to the pre-Obama administration. Sally, the point you made about balancing the environment with economics, we can see writ large when we look at the global challenge as we need to move from a global energy system, 80% reliant on carbon-based fuels to one that transitions off of carbon. 
And that's going to take multiple decades, and it's going to need to be done in a way in which we roll out new technologies and do it in a way in which we are very mindful of the economic impact on the people that are going to need to support these policies. You know, one of the simplest things we can and should do is level the playing field. And I did not have a good understanding of this when I was, until I got into government, but there's over 30 different subsidies for the fossil fuel industry that have been in place for decades. And I remember as a banker, banking oil and gas companies, things like uh, intangible drilling costs were able to be expensed in the first year that reduces uh, income taxes. Those are things that the oil and gas industry and the mining industry have fought against when it comes to renewable energy. And, you know, I, I don't even think we need to put incentives in place for renewable energy if we just get rid of the subsidies, which right now, don't align economic interests and environmental interests. They align economic interests against environmental interests. So, you know, let's start there with uh, revisiting those policies that incent development of the wrong kinds of energy. Sally, you are right on there. And I often make the point that too many people think of the tax code as a revenue raising document. Sure, it's very important in terms of raising revenues, but it also is a document where we spend money. And so many of the subsidies we have today in the tax code or preferences have to do with supporting and subsidizing carbon-based fuels. And I'm sure those subsidies, like many other preferences in the tax code, made sense when they were enacted into law. But once they become part of law and we get vested interests and vested interests that are counting on those and believing they're entitled to those. They almost become entitlements. And you see big lobbies built up around that and a lot of money spent lobbying Congress to keep those in place. But I think it's going to be very, very difficult to mitigate the climate risk, maybe impossible to mitigate the climate risk unless we get at some of those subsidies that no longer make sense. So let's talk, your career is far from over. Tell our listeners what you're doing now and how it draws on your earlier experiences. Well, right now I'm, I'm really concentrating on taking this understanding that I have, which takes a while to develop, right? I guess it's systems thinking. It's sort of recognizing that in a democracy, you really need, and I mean, I think it's, it's true well beyond a democracy, but we live in a democracy, fortunately. You need multiple voices and perspectives in order to shape a future that is sustainable. And sustainable means economically sustainable, which people are gonna demand, but environmentally sustainable, which people need, but they may not fully understand. And so what I have been doing since I left government is, is kind of twofold. One is working with young people. So I did a fellowship at Harvard. I've done two different tours at the University of Washington, one in the College of the Environment as a distinguished fellow, and now as the Fritzky Chair in Leadership at the Business School. And it's helping students, whether they are, are scientists or environmental policy folks, understand the role of business, the role of the academic sector, the role of the nonprofit sector, the role of citizen activists, the role of government at every level in shaping that kind of a future that we need if we're going to thrive over the long term. Right now in the business school at the University of Washington, it is about working with businesses. It's working with professors, hopefully to move beyond their very narrow and deep academic silos to recognize the world is pretty horizontal. And so how do you weave sustainability into your curriculum of accounting, of marketing, of management of finance? How do businesses work with a university business school to make sure that the students are coming out 
equipped to do that? And how do the students equip themselves for this workforce and these needs of the future that are very different than what they might have been for their parents? So, you know, that's largely what I'm doing now, in addition to giving back. So Center for Native American Youth, deeply involved with um, Native youth. It is something that was unfinished business for me at Interior. The Bureau of Indian Education has just struggled for years from the, you know, the legacy of the boarding schools, which, you know, worked under U.S. government to, you know, quote, kill the Indian by removing the culture to save the man in a, I think, a a very ill-advised and damaging way. So I'm working with Native youth and um, it's a pleasure to do that. And I'd say a lot of my volunteer work uh, on the social service side really helped me understand some of the systemic issues that we've got to deal with on that. So doing that, volunteering, and then uh, I'm on several corporate boards. And uh, part of that is bringing my experience to help the companies understand how they need to evolve to changing expectations and frankly, to corporate responsibility around the impact on the planet and that we're not going to solve this if business does not step up in a big way to be part of the solution and to support the kinds of policies we talked about that align environmental interests and social interests with uh, economic interests. So that's what I'm up to. Big, big job. And you've got a lot of experience to bring to bear. Now, talking about your experience, very Very few leaders have your record of success in multiple private sector industries, in government, and in philanthropy. You know, I watched your leadership skills on a firsthand basis when you stepped in to help the Nature Conservancy very successfully manage a leadership transition during a difficult time. So what are the Sally Jewell principles for leadership? You know, I think by this stage with my my little Bachelor of Science degree in mechanical engineering, <laughs> that's my academic background, been a lot of the seat of the pants learning that has happened along the way, but it started very early for me. And it began, most of these career moves I've taken from the very first job I took working on equipment for the Alaska Pipeline as a college student, I didn't know what I was doing and I knew I didn't know. And I asked people for help and I listened and I respected their input. So if there's a key word that I use when I think about leadership across sectors, it is respect and respect for people's input at every level of the organization. And and that means, especially when, I mean, as you get position power and I never had a more powerful position than the one I had in government, it's much harder to get a straight answer out of people. They want to tell you what they think you want to hear. And so you have to create a safe space and or a conduit through others for people to share what's really going on. And when you do that and you take that armed with that knowledge and you begin to ask questions of the people who are in a position to change those things within your organization, that's when you begin to see real change. And I don't think anybody rolls out of bed saying, I want to do a lousy job today. You know, I I just don't. I think people want to do a good job. They want to feel valued for what they do. And so to me, it's all about creating that kind of environment uh, for folks. And as young people, even my own children, as you run into situations where they're really unhappy, you know, my, my typical comeback is life's too short to work for a jerk. You know, if you if you really don't feel respected and valued for the work you do, it's probably time to start looking even within an organization to someone that does value you. And, you know, we've all had experiences like that, you know, find a place where you feel respected. And the last thing I say to people and not surprising, given our conversation is to volunteer, you know, volunteering 
helps you build leadership skills and connections and empathy and understanding that you would never get just if you stay in your lane in the in the business world. And it fills the heart, not just the wallet. And that's important too. One last piece of advice I give people is take care of the machine, your body, yourself. You know, it's interesting with your career advice because that's one of the things I learned very early on. I started off working in the Pentagon for multiple people, very senior people. And I found that, uh, you know, that I, I, I learned a lot more working with some than with others. Some appreciated my skills more than others. And so wherever I moved after that, I was very conscious of who I'd be working for, what I'd be learning. So, but let's finish with young people. So you're spending so much time with young people, students at the University of Washington. What career advice do you share with them? One of the things I share with them is do not worry about not knowing trajectory your career is going to take. So many think that people like me have a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, I don't know, a 45-year plan, but it's just not true. And it and it is really an exploration. And as and and I the other thing I tell people is understand yourself. Because thank God most people really aspire to be good at what they do and do that for a long time. I am <laughs> maybe this sounds funny, but I would say I'm not one of those. I it's not that I don't aspire to be good at everything I do. When I am really good at something, I get itchy feet and I need to move on. And I need to do something that's really difficult. And I, I know as hard as it is and as frustrating it is for me, I'm happiest when I'm on the steepest part of the learning curve. So that's not right for everybody. It isn't everybody. So most importantly, uh, it's understanding yourself and try and it, and you don't you can't just sort of say, well, this is what I want to be. Therefore, this is what I am. You really have to watch your own behavior. And the other thing I, I tell young people is to ask the people that are closest to you, your parents, your your uh, partner, your good friends, ask them what your strengths are. Ask them if what you think you are is actually who you are. And you'll get some pretty interesting answers. But I, I really just encourage them to explore, uh, explore within themselves and explore what's out there until they find something, you know, over time that kind of accomplishes both happiness and a sense of satisfaction, but also, you know, what it is that they want to be, those situations where they are happiest. So true. And it so often it comes down to self-awareness being honest with yourself, because usually people are happiest when they're doing something they're good at, right? Right. And you're obviously good at taking on challenges, right? Taking on challenges, getting out of your comfort zone. So, but, but that's not for everyone. So Sally, this has been terrific. We've covered a lot of ground and you've given our listeners a lot to think about. So thank you very much. Thanks for doing this, Hank. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.